Welcome to members of our board and supporters of the Wilson Center joining from the United States and around the world, and I literally mean around the world. On this call, among others, are our Wilson board members of Thelma Duggan, our former board chairman, uh, Ambassador Joseph Gildenhorn, uh, with his extraordinary Alma, and a former board member, Chuck Cobb, who soon will introduce our Investment and Finance Committee meeting following this meeting. Uh, we have the co-chairs of our Global Advisory Council, uh, General Dave Petraeus and Sir John Scarlett, both of whom have done star turns as speakers in, in prior um, meetings like this, uh, and our nearest and dearest uh, supporters, including, among others, Marlene Malik. This is the seventh installment of our private Wilson policy briefs. Each week we are inviting experts to help the extended Wilson family. That's you. Uh, make sense of the COVID-19 epidemic and how the world is responding to it. Of course, when we talk about the world, we're talking in part about leaders at the helm of various countries, certainly including the United States. Our programs reveal that some leaders are dismissing the crisis. Others are responding quickly and effectively. Still others are using it to amass unprecedented power. And finally, some uh, started out dismissing it and their views have evolved. Uh, think UK and Boris Johnson, who actually got the virus. Even in countries where leaders have been restrained, they still have an outside influence on their population. So, bottom line, leaders matter. Related issue, does moral leadership matter? Segway to our dear friend Joe Nye, who wrote his book, Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump before the COVID-19 crisis hit. But its insights are relevant, um, and no doubt he will... Um, address some topics, and if he doesn't, I'll ask him about a few. Uh, Joe's book will matter long after COVID-19, and as the world continues to face other uh, enormous uh, leadership crises, including uh, environmental, nuclear, technological, and, oh, by the way, future pandemics. Uh, who is more credentialed than Joe Nye? Uh, nobody. He graduated summa cum laude from Princeton, is a Rhodes Scholar, has a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard, served as dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs, chair of the National Security Council, and a deputy uh, undersecretary of state. He's also co-chaired for decades the Aspen Strategy Group, on which I am honored to serve, and chaired until recently the North American part of the Trilateral Commission, uh, which I rejoined at his request and now serve on its uh, executive committee. At 80-plus, I'm not making this up, he can outthink, outhike, and outfish all of us except maybe Dave Petraeus. Uh, please note that the first part of this conversation will be recorded and will be followed by an off-the-record Q&A segment. If you have a question, uh, please email it to nora.bodner at wilsoncenter.org, nora.bodner at wilsoncenter.org, and she will uh, state your name and ask your question. And now, please join me in welcoming our friend, Joe Nye. Thank you, Jane, for that overly generous introduction. There's one thing you forgot to add, though, one of my proudest uh, uh, accomplishments, which is I'm, a, I'm an alumnus of the Woodrow Wilson Center. But in uh, uh, any case, let me turn to the issue at hand, which is do morals matter? Uh, when I told a friend that I was writing a book with that title, her comment was, uh, well, good, at least it'll be a short book. And certainly the conventional wisdom is that people think that uh, 
everything is determined by national interest and morals really don't matter that much. Or uh, as I once uh, uh, put it, uh, interests bake the cake and then politicians come along and sprinkle a little morality on it like icing to make it look pretty, but uh, the cake is baked by national interests. Indeed, uh, one time I was, when I was working on nuclear negotiations uh, with a French colleague, um, I said, or asked him, did he think there were significant moral issues that we were getting into? And he said, there is no morality in international politics. The only thing that matters is the interests of France. And I don't think he realized what a profound moral statement he had just made. But that's often the way people see it. And so when we hear phrases like America first, there's nothing wrong with that. I would expect that in France, uh, Macron would say France first. The question is not, does an elected leader have to put the interests of uh, his people and his country first? Of course he does. The question is, how does he define it? How narrowly or broadly does he define that national interest? And that really is is where the morality comes in. Do you take a broad view or a narrow view? Uh, I look at 14 presidents uh, who have had the office since 1945, and what's striking is that some of the early presidents, like Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower, had a very broad concept of what American interests were. For example, if you take uh, the Marshall Plan, Marshall Plan was very much in American interest, but it was in European interest at the same time. That ability to find the national interest broadly rather than merely as a narrow transaction in which I win, you lose like a real estate deal is where the morality fits. Now, the other question in the book is, can I prove that, that morality really mattered, that it was more than icing dribbled on the cake? And there, are, I use uh, a number of these vignettes to, to show that it matters. But let me just give you a brief account of one to show that it really was a key ingredient in the cake, not just icing. Harry Truman is often um, uh, blamed or uh, uh, exonerated for dropping nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but people forget that there was a third bomb and that Truman refused to drop the third bomb. And his reasons, as he told people around him, is he didn't want to kill any more women and children. But perhaps even more important is five years later, when he was in the process of seeing the Korean War either lost or stalemated and was told this will destroy his presidency, uh, General MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, said that if Truman would allow him to drop 25 to 40 atomic bombs on Chinese cities, he would win the war. And Truman said no, that uh, he was not going to kill that many women and children. And uh, he was indeed punished uh, in terms of his presidency for that. But think if he'd made that decision differently. Suppose that he had treated nuclear weapons not as a rare type of weapon for deterrence only, but as normal war-fighting weapons, uh, the world would look very different today. 
And so I would argue that that's an example where the moral view of the president made a huge difference to history. It was the key ingredient, if you want, not just icing that was sprinkled on top. So I I try to argue that, yes, morals matter, that we can show it, uh, and that if you have the cynical view that they don't matter, you're going to get history wrong. Now, what does that mean we do about it? Uh, Frankly, I think the answer is we have to get away from simplistic types of answers about morality, such as somebody having moral clarity because they state uh, freedom agenda or good intentions. They have to really think of morality in all three dimensions of motives, means, and consequences. And it's a balancing judgment of how leaders do on all three of these. And that then turns out to be crucial in terms of not just proving that morals matter, but how should we think about how they did matter. Let me now bring this to a conclusion by uh, by relating it to the current crisis of COVID um, and the way uh, we are reacting to it. Uh, both the American and Chinese uh, leadership, the leadership of the two biggest economies in the world, uh, basically handled this badly uh, with denial, delay, and then uh, a, a slanging war, a propaganda war. The Chinese tried to blame it on the American military. The president of the United States started referring to it as the Chinese virus. And I would argue that that was very narrow definition of national interest, both in China and in the U.S. Imagine that we had taken a broader view of what the situation required in terms of moral leadership. There is reason to believe that uh, pandemics like this come in waves, certainly in 1918, in which more people died from the influenza uh, pandemic than died in World War I. Uh, it was the second wave that occurred in the fall of 1918 that was more lethal than the first. And we might imagine that something like this could happen with the coronavirus that uh, we may get it somewhat under control in some of the richer countries in the world, but it may be that many poor countries are just not able to cope. And the virus may find itself a reservoir in the poor southern half of the world, and you may find that that reservoir overflows seasonally back up into the northern part of the globe Uh, every uh, year or six months or so. Uh, If that's the case, there's more than just a humanitarian argument for us to want to launch a major COVID uh, coping capacity fund under the UN or the G20 uh, to help these countries develop a capacity to deal with this coronavirus. Henry Kissinger referred to this in his Wall Street Journal article as a new Marshall Plan. Whether it's Marshall or not, what it would mean would be that we would join with other countries uh, and try to develop a major fund to help these poor countries cope both 
for humanitarian and for self-interested reasons. That's the analogy to Marshall. We did it for our self-interest, but we defined our self-interest broadly. Instead of the current slanging match between the U.S. and China, uh, suppose that President had called Xi Jinping, had gotten in touch with key European leaders, with uh, Abe in Japan, and said, let's jointly launch in the G20 a major fund of this sort. Let's also call an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council to rally other countries around it. That could have been transformational leadership. Instead, what we have is very narrow transactional leadership, and I would argue that's the difference between moral leadership and the lack thereof. Uh, what a sad comment on the fact that we had an opportunity to do this, and we blew it. Uh, it may not be too late if there is a second surge of the of the coronavirus sometime in the fall or next winter. But uh, frankly, I think this has been a, a example of why morals matter and also a moral failure on our part and on the part of others. So those are the thoughts I have about what I was trying to do in the book and uh, also how it relates to the current situation in which we find ourselves. So let me stop there, Jane. Okay, um, that was very interesting, and thank you for bringing it around to COVID. Um, Joe, I'd like to start with something. I've read the book. Um, everyone on this call um, should read this book. It's extremely interesting. And one of the things in it, in the introduction, is a long section on Woodrow Wilson. So far as, he know, as I know, he wasn't a president uh, from FDR to Trump, but I think your point is that the, the heading of the section is called Wilsonian Liberalism, that Wilson uh, had a lot to do with framing the leadership of a lot of folks who came after, including Republicans. And I'm just going to quote from you. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, here are a few quotes. I'll just read them since we have a little time. Um, Wilson understood the concept of balance of power, but he regarded it as immoral because it cut up weak nations like cheeses for the convenience of great powers. Wilson believed that a league of nations based on collective security pact against aggression would be more peaceful. And then you go on and you say, where Wilson succeeded was not as a foreign policy leader, but as what we now call a thought leader, a symbol of a new moral type of international relations and then you go on to say, Wilson strongly affected Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. Uh, and then you quote um, uh, George Kennan, who said uh, later in his life, I now see Wilson as ahead of any other statesman of his time. That was very surprising to read. And finally, you say, Henry Kissinger noted, even the ultimate realist Richard Nixon was, was influenced by Wilson and hung his picture in the White House. Kissinger concluded that, quote, Wilson's ultimate greatness must be measured by the degree to which he rallied the tradition of American exceptionalism, a prophet, a prophet toward whose vision America has judged itself obliged to aspire. That would be a Kissingerian uh, framing of a, of, a, of a thought. But anyway, Joe, I on this call. Certainly I will be very interested in how you see Wilson as kind of a founding father of the the current 
uh, uh, I wouldn't say moralism necessarily, but 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 the presidents who followed him. Well, I I admire Wilson's appraisal of the situation and his expression of it. Uh, if you want his intentions of the three dimensions that I mentioned were good and well thought through. I think where I would fault Wilson would be uh, on the second dimension of means. He really didn't have the means to accomplish what he needed. Uh, And in failing to accomplish that and raising aspirations too high, uh, he led to a reaction, which was the isolationism of the 30s, which, of course, had horrible consequences in the failure to stand up to Mussolini and Hitler and Tojo. So uh, I'm an I'm ad- admirer of Wilson, uh, but if he'd been a little bit more flexible and more cautious in terms of the means uh, that he was proposing or that he had available to him to carry out these, these uh, goals or intentions, I think we'd be better off. Although yet putting that in short is uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And uh, it was Wilson's intentions are, to my mind, very good. Uh, The means and consequences are not as high. Well, uh, too bad you didn't know. We we all didn't know Woodrow Wilson back in the day. But uh, just let me push that a bit because you were talking about how tragic it is that we have transactional leadership and we don't have visionary leadership. Uh, I assume you would put Wilson in the visionary line. Oh, yeah, very much so. But it's not enough to have a vision. You have to have a vision which is achievable because if you try to accomplish a vision which is not achievable and it fails, then I think you may have consequences that are worse. I use a simple uh, metaphor for uh, of a road accident or a car accident to illustrate this three-dimensional version of morality. If uh, a friend says, I'll bring your daughter home early from the high school dance so that she'll be fresh for the SATs tomorrow morning, uh, and you say, great, that's great intentions, but then he doesn't notice that the road is iced over or is slippery, uh, skids off the road when he speeds too much and hits a tree and your daughter is killed, you would say those are horrible immoral consequences because he wasn't paying adequate attention to means. Or in legal terminology, we'd say he didn't do due diligence about the means and didn't think through the potential unintended consequences, and that we call culpable negligence. So you have to think not just what are good intentions, but can I carry them out? And if I can't carry them out the way I expect, if I don't have the means available, uh, what will be the unintended consequences, more or immoral? Uh, and alas, I think Wilson failed on that. And I, I also would argue that George W. Bush um, uh, who had, I think, admirable intentions with his freedom agenda, uh, but didn't think through the means uh, and had some highly immoral consequences of the actions he took in Iraq. Um, agreed, uh, certainly about the Bush 
uh, comments. And he also rolled out uh, a democracy agenda um, as in his uh, second State of the Union that had some appeal, but as in practice, I guess that would be the same thing, visionary, but then uh, uh, means and consequences were not adequately thought through. But what I want to ask you, Joe, is we've talked mostly about Woodrow Wilson, because I asked, and <clears throat> COVID-19 and current uh, the current president, uh, using your three-part formula, motive, means, and consequences, uh, could you kind of riff us through FDR to Trump and who was best and who wasn't best? That is in your book, but I think the right. uh, people listening would be very interested. Well, I divide the 14 presidents into uh, uh, three categories, of what I call the, the upper tier of the four who did best on morality, the bottom tier, uh, four did worse, and the others who stretch out in between, between with sort of good B-plus marks or maybe A-minuses. Or, uh, and the top tier, I, I rank Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower, and uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, each of them w- took a period which was open to transformational leadership and defined our interests in broad terms. Uh, that may seem obvious with uh, Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower in the period of the Marshall Plan. Look at George H.W. Bush, or Bush 41. Uh, he was faced with a extraordinary revolution in world affairs after the Berlin Wall came down. And he managed to pull off the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union with Germany united inside NATO and not a shot being fired. That was quite extraordinary and required great emotional and contextual intelligence and ways of defining his interests and the national interest in broad terms, not in narrow transactional terms. The three, the four rather, who come out at the bottom are uh, Lyndon Johnson, because of the way he trapped himself in Vietnam, uh, Richard Nixon, who despite his uh, a brilliant opening to China, uh, basically wound up with killing 22,000 Americans for the sake of a decent interval, which only lasted two years. Um, I would put George W. Bush uh, in the same bottom tier because of the invasion of Iraq though he had some redeeming features, such as the PEPFAR initiative in Africa. And I guess the fourth one would be Donald Trump, though in fairness as a grader, I'd have to say, or a teacher, I'd have to say uh, incomplete is your grade, but uh, needs further attention. Uh, The other presidents, uh, with those four on top, those four at the bottom, are stretched out in between, uh, all with very respectable grades. Um, just a, a few more questions for me. I'm guessing there'll be a lot of uh, questions from those listening. Um, one of them is just a comment. Uh, at Aspen last summer, Jim Mattis was speaking, and he was asked about <clears throat> an example of, of presidential leadership that he admired most. And he talked about George H.W. Bush and the decision um, to know when the Kuwait action was over and not to go farther. He said, uh, Bush defined the mission and knew 
when the mission was complete and and said mission complete. I mean, I don't think he was on an aircraft carrier like his son was, but uh, in fact, I don't remember that, and I bet he wouldn't have done it. But uh, uh, that was Mattis's example, and I assume that would be on your list too of a good example of leadership. That would be very much so, but I think it also illustrates something about Bush as a leader. He didn't. He had good intentions, but he didn't go from maximum objectives. He also knew how to exercise restraint at crucial times. Remember when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, there were a number of people, including William Sapphire, then writing for the New York Times, who criticized Bush for not making a bigger propaganda victory. After all, this was something which we had proclaimed, uh, uh, and uh, here it happens, we should... We should do that. And Bush's comment was, I'm not going to dance on the wall because I have to work with Gorbachev and we're going to have to negotiate some very tough issues and it's not going to help matters if I dance on the wall. That was really emotional self-restraint or what I call emotional intelligence, uh, not narcissism or egocentricity. And uh, look what a difference it made. So Bush, Bush 41 really was was admirable in uh, his emotional and contextual intelligence. Uh, and that, I think, even though he didn't express uh, transformative visions like Woodrow Wilson, uh, he presided over a transformation with uh, quite extraordinary results. Well, I'm... One woman's opinion is to be in violent agreement with you, as as we say at the Wilson Center. My last question is back to COVID, just because. Um, just in the last several days, uh, it's been in the news, I assume it's true, that um, uh, the president wants to give an address at West Point, so he has asked cadets to return. West Point has been closed. He wants to give the commencement address he was invited to give, but there is no commencement this year, and they're going to come back for this. Second thing in the paper today was that the Defense Production Act is being used to order uh, workers back to meat packing plants in order that the uh, um, uh, supply chain not be interfered with. The specific circumstances of both of these events uh, are still to be defined. Uh, you know, and and then the vice president did speak to uh, uh, where did he speak to uh, the Air Force. Uh, and there was, uh, you know, social distancing and things of that nature. Uh, but at any rate, I just want to put those two uh, uh, events, assuming they are events, on the table and just ask you to evaluate them uh, according to your uh, leadership formula. Well, the the intention uh, uh, is, I think, uh, good in both cases. The question, again, is do you have the means to accomplish it without uh, immoral, unintended consequences? And have you thought that through? If, for example, you can uh, have a graduation ceremony with six feet between the cadets and figure out where you're going to put them in dormitories um, uh, so that they're not close to each other or how you're going to handle the food preparations and so forth, this may be doable. But if you can't figure out how to get the means right, you're going to have the wrong kinds of unintended consequences. So uh, it, as in, 
it's the devil is in the details. But failure to pay attention to the details is what would lead to immorality. And the same thing would go with restoring uh, food production. Uh, can you find ways to manage slaughterhouses and massive uh, uh, handling uh, of carcasses and so forth uh, and have people working under conditions which are uh, not going to cost them their lives or high risk of their lives. It may be possible, but until you've answered that question, I don't think you should do it. 